Many of you know that Celeste and I went up to Shetland um, last fall. And one of the places that our tour guide took us to was Scalloway Castle. It's a 16th century castle that was built by the Earl Patrick Stewart, who evidently was a very cruel taskmaster. And he built his home with its tower with forced labor. He and his son were eventually, in around 1615, were both executed for executable crimes. And the castle sat there. Because the people hated it. They hated the cost to their families. The labor that they were forced to give this man to live in this opulent style. And so they did nothing. See, it was when I was at Scalloway Castle that I learned the way castles dissolve. Usually they had slate roofs. And the storm will dislodge one or move it. And then another... And if they're neglected, eventually parts of the roof begin to be exposed and the water starts to come in. And of course, you know, when you have a 17th century castle, you give it a couple centuries and, you know, the whole thing is nicely cleaned out by the rain and the wind and the elements because of neglect. Because nobody did anything to stop it. And as I drive around our part of Scotland here in the Highlands and I see homes and barns and castles that have stone walls but no roofs, I wonder, was it because of neglect or a fire? And it's interesting how some of these beautiful skeletons of what they used to be are places of pilgrimage. That's a religious word for being a tourist. (laughs) You go where you don't live. You enjoy what's not yours. So when the writer of Hebrews uses the word neglect, it's that image of a decaying castle. Nothing attacks it. You know, I've told you the story about the McFarland Castle down in Loch Lomond where we happened to be on the wrong side of Oliver Cromwell's excursion into Scotland and we had been famous for years as archers. That's what the McFarlands brought to the battle was bows and arrows. Unfortunately, Cromwell bought cannon. And so you see these walls that are down. But we have visual images of neglect. So when I get to that part of the sermon, you can begin to think. Because see, neglect in verse 3 means that they weren't listening to the word of God, the word of the angels. They were neglecting the message of revelation and redemption that was meant 
to cover them like a roof. We get into verse 3. I'm going to use that roof illustration again, the things that God gives us to cover us, that we have to be careful we don't neglect. But I find it interesting that chapter 2 is one of those chapters that starts off, therefore, um, I remember in, in college there were several young preachers who would say, you know, what's, there, what's, what's that therefore, therefore? <laughs> We must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, the therefore refers to the two sermons that I preached at the beginning of this series from chapter 1 about the Word of God and about the Son of God. And so it's taking and it's building on that. And that's one of the things about the book of Hebrews is that you see it as a book that is woven together by its words, it's woven together by its themes. But they're very simple themes. And so he begins with a warning. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. One of the things that in our day and age, we have become a screen, a scanning culture moving away from the reading culture that moved away from the listening culture. When this was written, the way people heard the word of God was they listened to it. It wasn't mass produced. Everybody didn't have it. But it was still the word of God. Just as when we read and sang those psalms, those psalms have been sung and recited for centuries. Because that's what God's word was. It was to be used together. We must pay closer attention. Do you see the effort that he's asking for? He wants us to pay attention. He wants us to focus. He wants us to put our hearts and our minds into the efforts of hearing it. Now, as I think about the church and about the Bible and all of that, we know that for centuries... There were these liturgies where people could go to church every day in the morning and the evening and on Sunday and hear the word of God read through because they didn't have it at home because basically they couldn't read. So it was what they heard. Lest we drift away from it. See, the idea of drifting implies that that you don't have control. You've lost control over where you're going. You're drifting. Sometimes drifting can seem very enjoyable. I have an aluminum canoe back in the States that belonged to my grandfather. And it is a canoe that has a smooth bottom. It doesn't have a rib to guide it. It it's, gives you a lot of mobility, but that means you have to work. And sometimes you enjoy just drifting down the stream, but sometimes when you're drifting down the stream, all of a sudden you see rocks, you see things you don't know, and you have to start guiding yourself because you don't want to drift into it. 
when my daughter and, and her husband were here, we went out to the Isle of Cana. And when you go on this boat trip, one of the things you see is a French fishing boat that I guess about seven years ago drifted into the rocks and is just on its side. And see, the idea that I could lose control because I'm not paying attention to God's word, that my life will just drift, and that's why I've called this and you know, I think this is the first sermon I've named, given a title to, The Dangers of Drifting. And I'm going to connect neglect and drifting in a moment. So the first thing that, that we want to hear and want to remember of what the writer of Hebrews is telling that generation and our generation is that we have to pay closer <coughs> attention to what we've heard. We've got to pay attention. There are so many things that want to distract us from that attention to the word of God. Lest we drift away. How many friends, how many family members do we see drifting away? Drifting away from the word of God, drifting away from Jesus Christ, drifting away from the worship of God. See, it's not like it's open rebellion. It's just drifting. Now, the next sentence, I looked at this and I said, this is when our Bibles get in the way of the Bible. Because when, you, you see how verse 2 has, has a comma there? See, it really should have ended the verse, I think, verse 4, put it to the next one. Verse 3, rather. See, verse 3, when you see that, we usually come to a full stop. You see, you see it, the verse. You see how it goes on, how shall we escape if we neglect? See, that's part of the beginning that begins in verse 2. That's one whole sentence that ends up with that question. I was looking at when did, when did verse numbers start coming into English Bibles. And what I determined, based on a quick internet search, some other scholar may say, oh, you're wrong, Fred. But when I look at a copy of the Tyndale Bible in the middle of the 16th century, and then I look at the six, you don't have verse numbers. One of the things I think is that chapters and, and then verses got, a, got put there was that gave illuminators more things to put in their Bibles. The time to make it special, to draw your attention. By the time we get to 1612, that version of the King James Bible, we have to remember the King James Bible kept getting revised, wasn't standardized until the 1760s. But the copy I saw of the 1612 King James had the verse numbers. Now, one of the problems with verse numbers is that the church, in an effort to make the word of God universal, 
didn't understand what would happen as it was brought into the language of the people. See, when you, when you go to seminary or college and you learn about Greek, one of the things you learn is that the original Greek texts are just letters. You know, there's no commas, there's no breakup for the word. You were just supposed to be able to pick it out when you read it. You could just look at this stream of data and say, that's what it was. So when you come and you translate it into English, and we think in terms of sentences, and when you look at how people thought King James time and our time, there are differences. So what I want you to do is to be able to look at this, and when you see commas and things like that, is just to push through the number, the verse number, to see what the text has to say. Now, first it talks about the message being declared by angels proved to be reliable. Remember, the angels were there at the resurrection. The angels were there at the ascension. God reveals to us. That's part of the roof that we get is his redemption, his revelation that he's giving us information from above. He's giving us information to help us live. This next part, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That idea of Christ dying, being buried, and being raised again so that our sins could be forgiven. That we know that all of our transgressions, all of our disobedience, that it's been paid for by Jesus Christ. This is a theme that we will see repeated again and again in the book of Hebrews with Old Testament verses brought to light on it to remind us of what Christ did for us. But see, those, those two lines, the idea of the angels giving us revelation, of Christ giving us redemption, it starts off in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? See, our salvation that is so great can be summed up in this text, Revelation, redemption. That's what covers us. God does not leave us alone. God does not leave us in the silence. God gives us his revelation to explain his redemption and the world that we live in. How shall we escape if we neglect? I have thought about neglect a lot this week. And neglect is basically a self-inflicted wound. Often it's because we choose not to choose, just like those people would walk by this decaying roof of this castle or this farmhouse. See, neglect, again, is not active rebellion. It's to choose to ignore, to not make a choice. You know, there are areas of life that can be damaged by neglect. We think about parents and children, husbands and wives. We think about people who work together, just neglecting each other, not saying, not interacting, just walking by in silence. See, when the writer of Hebrews was writing this, and people would hear the word of God in their worship services. They would hear about redemption and their things. 
part of the roof with the redemption and the revelation, see, that's expressed in worship. When we neglect worship, which expresses revelation and redemption, we're neglecting this great salvation. See, one of the things that happened after the Protestant Revolution, well, it was a revolution, but Reformation, was instead of having daily worship services because of a technology change, i.e. printed Bibles, families then could have morning and evening devotions. They could read scripture What was one of the greatest things that John Knox did for Scotland? He made sure there were schools so people could read because he wanted people to read because he wanted them to read the Bible. And so now we have a choice of family devotions, couples devotions with our friends or by ourselves, but we read and we reflect on the redemption that God has given us. See, when we start ignoring that, neglecting it, is when we start to drift. Because that's where our anchor is. That's where our point of reference is, is in the word of God that tells us about the redemption of Christ. And I truly believe that that revelation and that redemption is meant to cover us, that God gives us that, to protect us from the storm of life, to give us a place of safety under his word and under his redemption. You have heard me speak again and again how we live in this epidemic, global epidemic, epidemic, they tell us, of loneliness. And I believe part of that is the fact that people need to know that their sins can be forgiven because of Christ. They are brought into a community. They're not alone. But see, if we neglect the word of God, we neglect the message of grace, people are going to end up by themselves with no cover, like a castle, a barn, or a house with no roof. All alone. But look how he ends this. And again, I would have put the verse divide in the middle of verse 3, where it starts, it was declared... At first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Do you hear the thread of grace in all of that? All the things that are given to us, that we don't earn it, that we are given to it, it's given to us. First, it was declared first by the Lord. We go back and we hear, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus want us to remember? And you know, I'm going to go back to that passage in in Luke 24, where he says that, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be declared in my name to all the nations. The forgiveness of sins is something he wants us to know and to proclaim. He also teaches us about prayer. I don't know if you followed it, but there is this storyline out there because 
the Pope has changed the wording of the Lord's Prayer in Italian. And so the Catholics in Scotland said, that's fine, we're still going to use ours. And what I reminded some of my Facebook friends of is that most Protestants use Henry VIII's Lord's Prayer because he added on those lines about the glory of God at the end. When you look at the text in Matthew and you look at the text, you realize, oh, there's a different ending. Henry VIII. See, then you have the witnesses in this passage. It was attested to us by those who heard. See, that's why Jesus wants us to be witnesses. He wants us to pass it on from one generation to the next generation. This is who God truly is. This is what God has said. To point them back to the Bible, to the word of God. And then all the signs and and, and wonders that God did through Christ. And then we come down to the Holy Spirit at the end. And you have heard me again and again say we cannot do what God calls us to do without the Holy Spirit. And again it is reminded of the gifts. I think the greatest couple of gifts, and we could, you know, there are a lot of gifts in terms of the Holy Spirit. But that gift that he gives us, the spirit of adoption, we cry out, Abba, Father, that gift of a new heart, when he changes our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, we can repent and confess our sins and be forgiven. All of that happens because of the Holy Spirit, and we believe that all of Scripture It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit, even the very words. So the scripture itself is one of the greatest gifts of the Holy Spirit to us. Remember, if we don't pay attention to what we have heard, we're going to start drifting. The Holy Spirit has given us an anchor, a harbor, a dock, whatever you want to do to say, so I don't have to drift. Or the Holy Spirit has put winds in our sails and we can sail where we need to go. You see, you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this simple four-verse passage. The two things that we can use all of the gifts, all of the things that he has given us to do, is to make sure we don't neglect them that then causes us to drift. Have there been periods of your life where you feel like you're just drifting, where you're not anchored, where you're not sure? I think one of the things, images of drifting that we have that sometimes they use this in movies or storytelling is that when you're drifting, but you're drifting in a fog, you can't see where the current is taking you. You don't know whether there are rocks or a waterfall or a sandbar. Or a reef. So when you start to drift and you sense that. 
ask yourself, if I've been neglecting the gifts that God has given me, if I've been neglecting the word of God, if I've been neglecting, neglecting redemption, knowing that I am forgiven, because if I start to neglect those, and, and it's basically you just ig- being ignored. Just walking by. Choosing not to engage the word of God and God's message of redemption. My prayer for all of us. That we will pay much closer attention that we will not neglect the great salvation. Let us pray.